plan, reading plan starts today, so you'll have an assignment today. Bad thing to start getting behind here. A couple of quick announcements for you. Please notice in your uh, announcements page there. You guys have that with me. Look quickly. Uh, Pivot Lunch, for those of you in the Pivot Age ministry, is today in room 204. Uh, Prayer for Power meeting, beginning of the month here, is uh, Thursday night, June 5th at 7 p.m. here at room 200. VBS is suddenly upon us. So if you have children in the VBS age group from 4 to 11, or you have relatives that you'd like to friend or neighbors that you'd like to invite, please let them know. This week, help us by getting them signed up. That's pretty easy to do. You can go on the website, and I think you can sign up there, or you can let us know this morning on the way out. You'll see the the table set up for VBS. Let us know that that your kids are coming June 9th through the 13th, so one week from tomorrow. Uh, Beta Child Care, very excited about the many, many folks we have participating in Beta. As you know, Beta is our follow-up. Uh, small group to Alpha, which let me, uh, by the way, say this. If you're new to Lakeview and you've been looking for maybe a group to, to get to know some folks in, or, or maybe you're just taking your first few steps in the Christian faith, the beta group is a great place for you to land. Uh, it's a lot of new folks who are finding their way in the Christian life together and, and they're meeting together. It's a pretty good sized group that's actually meeting this time, but that's happening. I don't see any of the information on there happening Tuesday nights. Franco, help me. Seven o'clock Tuesday night here. And so you are welcome to participate in that, but we need some help with some child care. So if you uh, could be available for a couple of Tuesday nights, uh, uh, to help us out with the children that might need to be cared for during that time, we would greatly appreciate you letting us know that. I believe you can sign up for that uh, or email hope at hope at lakeleychristiancenter.com. All right, one other announcement, and I'm going to invite uh, Cindy Lincoln to come up and share this with us. And it's information about our ministry called Christ Cares Cancer Ministry. And so we're very excited about how God is just opening a variety of venues for us to reach into people's lives, where they live with the gospel. And and this is one of those opportunities that we have. And it wouldn't be happening if Miss Cindy Lincoln was not helping us to do that. So Cindy, let me grab you a microphone and you can share with these guys what's happening there. Cancer is a word that caused one to have a wide range of emotions from fear, death, uncertainty, anger, and loneliness are just a few. In 2011, 60 Louisianas received the diagnosis of cancer every day. I was one of those 60, and I know what cancer can steal. But there is something more dangerous than cancer, and that is sin. Cancer's damage is only temporary. But the damage of sin is eternal. The mission of Christ Cares Cancer Ministry is to bring the gospel and serve those who are facing a thief that is trying to steal their life. In the past, we have served both members of the church and the community by sitting with loved ones as caretakers need a break, babysitting while patients go for tests and treatment, and providing meals after a loved one has been lost. On a monthly basis, 
we serve the guests of Hope Lodge, which is a facility that the American Cancer Society manages. Cancer patients from around the country come to stay while they receive treatment. We provide them with meals, the gospel, fellowship, and an opportunity to be prayed over. I would like to share with you a story that happened in our last visit. Last month, there was a patient at Hope Lodge, Mr. Patterson. He was sitting at a table with some other patients who were believers. A group of us prayed with the believers, Joanne and Danny, while Mr. Patterson sat at the table and bowed his head respectfully. After we had finished praying, we got up and started walking away. Mr. Patterson asked Joanne, are they going to leave those nice big Bibles for us? Joanne answered, yes, they always do. Would you like one? Mr. Patterson said, I've never owned a Bible before. Joanne encouraged Mr. Patterson to go get one, but he was very reluctant. He finally went over and picked one up. His face lit up like it was Christmas. He came back to the table and stated, this is my first Bible, opened it, wrote his name in it, and started flipping the pages and reading. And John Piper's How Not to Waste Your Cancer, Piper gives 11 principles. Principle 11 is we waste our cancer if we fail to use it as a means to witness the truth and glory of Christ. If you have had cancer, I call you to walk proudly as a soldier for God, to fight against sin and cancer. Let your testimony of your cancer be a weapon in that fight. For those of you that have never had cancer, I give you 1 Peter 4.10. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as a faithful steward of God's grace in various forms. Our next visit to Hope Lodge is Wednesday, June 4th at 6 p.m. Parents, this is a great opportunity to serve as a family together. I hope to see you at the lodge so we can show these lonely and scared patients that Christ does care through our service to them. This card provides a list of the dates that we have. So if you cannot make it this Wednesday, please look at the dates and come. It's a great opportunity to just sit fellowship and pray for these patients some of them this is their last days to hear the gospel thank you many many opportunities many many needs for the gospel and grateful for all the folks who make themselves available for the gospel to go forward in a bunch of places like Hope Lodge. So thank you for the many who have made that ministry possible. If it's something that you'd like to do, just let us know that. You can contact the church office if you have some details you need to work through or questions that you still have. All right, children, you are dismissed to children's ministry. <clears throat> Thank <clears throat> you.
we, uh, we have some first-time guests who are here. One is here for the first time as Mr. and Mrs., and that would be uh, Daniel and Jess Goodman. Where are you guys at, Daniel and Jess? Congratulations. <clears throat> Survived week number one, still married. Congratulations. <laughs> Great to see you. Uh, we don't have a newborn little one here, but we do have news of a grandbaby to Mr. and Mrs. May. Where's John and Tammy? And that would be Camille Elise Rovero was born last night, I believe. So congratulations to grandparents and relatives that are here. <clears throat> Mom and baby are doing well. All right. I am betwixt and between, and I don't mean the way I preached about a couple of weeks ago. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> I have a message, and then I have a burden. And I'm trying to figure out how to put those two together right now. Open up to Joshua chapter 1 with me for just for a second. Last week to introduce our summer Bible jam, we looked at how it is that God is designed for us to enter into his promises. I think this is a solid principle that God is aware that you and I live in some less than ideal circumstances. God knows that. This is a fallen world. The stuff in your life isn't working correctly. Sometimes it's better than others, but there are plenty of moments where life doesn't feel like it's what it could be or even should be. And God introduces his people to something called the promised land, right? We've got these ideas in our head and that's, it's in the scripture. And so there is this entering into the promised land that we find in the Bible. And in the old Testament, it was a geographical land. They actually had crossed into it. In the New Testament, it doesn't have a physical geography, but I, I think it has things in it like the fruit of the Spirit. It's, it's, the, it's the dwelling place for a Christian where we get to experience love and joy and peace and patience, kindness and gentleness, self-control. Right? So that's, that's just good news, isn't it? Isn't it good news as you've kind of gotten sick of yourself that there's self-control available. That's good news. But I know that's not always our experience. Sometimes we feel like we're living outside of this land of promise. So here's, here's my burden to share with you as we approach summer Bible jam, because in the passage we looked at last week, entering this land was tied together with how we treat God's word whether we are devoted to it, whether we are meditating on it, whether it is reaching into our lives and and grabbing us. And so I I can't avoid for your life or for mine that if if this is neglected, it has an effect on our soul. I think it has a diminishing effect on whether or not you're experiencing love and joy and peace and patience. 
So for whatever reason, whether we're busy people, whether we just have never liked to read, whether, whatever it is, if this becomes a neglected feature in a Christian's life, then I think more than likely in, a, in many categories, we're going to stand on the other side of the Jordan and stare with binoculars at a land that we don't know what it's like to live in. Now, as, as a Christian, as a pastor, I hate that thought. I hate that thought for me. I hate it for every one of you. That you could be peering into something that's a concept in God that he says you can have from a distance and not experience it. So look at this passage. Joshua chapter 1 verse 2. This is just a word of burden for me. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you... And all this people into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. I think there's a land for us. I think there still remains a land. It's not in the Middle East, but there's a land available for us to enter into. I want to dwell in it. And I want you to dwell in it. And if we're going to dwell in it, there's a couple of things in this, just this one passage. There's the word arise. You want to dwell in this land? Arise. Get up and move from where you are. Too many Christians are standing today that just, we're living outside of some things, but we won't do anything different. We won't get up and do anything different. Just sit in the same place doing the same thing. We live for 5, 10, 20 years of our Christian life with the Bible being neglected. Arise. Arise. you got to get up. You can't stay where you are. Arise and go over the Jordan. Now, anything interesting as I think about that verse. This Jordan River, this... This fixed feature of the geography has been there all this time. It's not new. It's been there all this time. This is those familiar places in our lives, I think, that they're just always there. And guess what? There's no going around it. You can't go around the Jordan. You're going to have to go over the Jordan. You're going to have to overcome this thing in your life. So listen, I know it's very possible that you're a person, we're doing summer Bible jam, making all this noise about people getting the Bible every day of their life, and you're, you're immediately thinking, well, Keith, you don't understand, there's this river between me and daily Bible reading. It's always been there. Because in this room, there, there are a handful of Christians who get in their word on a regular basis. There's lots of Christians who would like to get in their word, but just don't ever seem to pull it off. That's the Jordan. And guess what? Unless you want to stay living on the other side of the Jordan, you're going to have to cross the Jordan. I don't got any other news for you. You're going to have to read the Bible. I don't be anybody be shocked that I'm, I'm messing with you in this category because there's too many people in this room right now who don't spend time reading the Bible. And when you look at your life and you say, okay, well, locate the land flowing with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and self-control and faithfulness. Locate that land. And and we look at our lives and we say, I kind of can't locate that land. 
it's across the river you won't cross. Arise and go across this Jordan into the land that I'm giving you. I don't believe God's not giving this land. I believe he's very much giving this land. But in this passage, this passage is going to move on to the need for us to know and do God's word. We've got to know and do God's word. In this invitation, the New Testament tweaks this passage here out a little bit in Hebrews chapter 4. And it talks about a people who don't enter into God's rest. This is the New Testament. There are some people who don't enter into God's rest. I'm not saying you're not a Christian. Just saying living in and dwelling in the promises of God, experiencing them and having being refreshed by them and having your soul affected by them is not occurring. And the Bible says that that can occur. That can be your state of existence. And then it says this very confusing association of words. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Let us strive to enter rest. Strive, rest. Does those two words go together in your theology? Strive and rest. Listen, you can strive for the wrong things in Scripture and you end up with Paul backhanding you with a book called Galatians and stuff like that. But that doesn't mean like, you know, I'm this amateur Christian who I heard the word strive, so let me strike it from the Bible everywhere because Galatians is down on striving. Therefore, the whole Bible's against striving. Hey, I just read it from Hebrews. Strive to enter into the rest that God has. Joshua, arise, get up and go across the Jordan and fight your way through the land. The land of rest. So listen, rest doesn't mean nothingness. It doesn't mean inactivity. The rest that we're entering into is a land that's been purchased by a striving that you and I could never have done. It is what Jesus Christ has purchased on our behalf. Entering into that, experiencing has got something to do with you and I doing certain things. Not doing in order to achieve righteousness, a righteousness of my own. Can't do that. But it is putting me in proximity to God's word. So this is what Summer Bible Jam is intending to do. It's an opportunity for us to make noise, to desperately try and encourage believers that if you want to dwell outside of the promises of God, if you want to live at a distance from the goodness and the depth of knowing the living God, well then go ahead and leave your Bible alone. But if you want to experience what God has... There will be no experiencing it apart from this word. Remember, Jesus said to those who had believed in him in the gospel of John, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Right, do, do anybody recognizing how we have chopped that verse up into little bitty pieces and disassociated it from itself? I've seen people who don't even know God stand up and quote part of that. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They're into freedom. They want to be free. They love the idea of being free. But that's not where this verse starts. 
And for those who had believed in him, Jesus said. So you can be a believer and still need to hear the Son of God tell you, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciple because a disciple is a learner. That's what the word disciple has as its root, a learner. So for whatever Jordan River exists in our lives that we've not crossed because we don't like to read or we just never have been readers or today we're reading everything else but the Bible, get up and get your butts across the river. And a way to do that is, is join together in summer Bible jam. Have a daily experience where you've taken this summer and you've said, you know what? I can sprint from here to August and I'm going to make this work and God's going to give me grace to do it. This is God's invitation. He will join me in this. His hand of favor is going to accompany me into this land and I'm going to cross, but you know what? Hey, I've never, I've never read. Well, you know, when they, when they put their feet in the water of the Jordan, God did miracles and he stopped the water up river and they, they crossed over on dry ground but they, they were stepping to go, right? So step in, sign up, be committed, watch God meet with you. I've never been consistent. I've never, hey, well, they hadn't fought giants and knocked down walls in Jericho's either, but God gave them grace. And so I want to, I want to appeal to every one of you. If you've not figured out how to make this summer Bible jam thing work for you, and it's about working for you. All right. We just, we've thrown some ideas at you, use them, if they sound just like what we suggested, great. If they sound like something different, that's okay. We're not trying to run a program here. We just want you to get in God's word. And we'd love for you to do that with others. So if you haven't done that today, do it before you leave here today. Uh, when I get ready to preach, this isn't part of the message, by the way. Um, I am going to stop on time, though. Take out your smartphone. Go on our website. Sign up. Get it done before you leave here today so that June 1st, you're getting started. I I don't want to live on the wrong side of the river. Okay. I don't want to do that. And I know you don't want to do that either. And this is how God meets us and how he finds us. Amen. All right. Thank you. All right. Well, this morning we're going to learn about how to read this Bible, how to, how to be engaged by it. Cause I don't want to just read a Bible. I want the Bible to read me. I love that phrase. When the Bible turns back and starts talking to you about you, that Bible's a living word and, and, it, and it slips its way into our lives and it, it assesses our thoughts and our intentions, our busy fears, et cetera, et cetera. This Bible has a tremendous effect. Let me, let me just tell you personally. In 1978, I'm a religious teenager lost but aware that, it, that something about life doesn't work, it needs to get fixed. And I stumble into a high school gymnasium during lunchtime and Frank Loria, not looking too much different than he looks right now, quite honestly, guy doesn't age, um, is, is a coach who is teaching a Bible study in this gymnasium that the school officials have said, sure, go ahead. So I'd sit in there and, and this guy keeps talking about life and talking about the Bible and talking about life and talking about the Bible. Okay. Now that's foreign to me. I've heard people talk about life and I've heard the Bible read at mass. 
but I, I haven't heard life and the Bible so close to each other. It's like bumping into each other. Like these things are connected. And, and there's something going off in my head that's making me curious. Like, so the, so the Bible's about life, apparently. And in my curiosity, I go home and I look around for a Bible. I, I want to start reading this Bible. I've never read the Bible in my life. I want to start reading this Bible. So I discovered in my brother's room this little New Testament, 1978. And I pick it up and I start reading it. I have no idea what I'm doing. Got no Bible education background. I'm just picking up something called the Bible that I've heard somebody talk about and I start reading it. You know, when I look back on experiences as a Christian, you know, what is it that has brought my spiritual development along? It's brought me to a place where God would have me to be. Certainly people have been a huge factor in that. I'm so grateful for friends and mature leaders in the body who taught me and I went to meetings and they sat with me and helped me through situations, helped me think and apply and counsel. I'm grateful for encounters with God that happened at conferences and learning things, experiencing God's presence, the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, being used in ministry to where you are aware that there's a supernatural God who uses and, and flows through our lives. But there is something very simple that I think I'd have to put as more foundational than anything else that has contributed to my growth. And, and it was it was being a teenager with this little Bible. There's all kinds of little marks in it. This is the very same Bible. And something very simple happened, and I have no idea why. There was no such thing as summer Bible jam going on. Uh, You know, I didn't have anybody telling me to read the Bible. But something in my heart went off, and I remember making a decision that I wanted to know this so I had committed that every, every day I would commit to reading three chapters of this Bible. That's all I did. I just, I'm going to read three chapters of this Bible every day. I can remember late nights about to fall asleep and remembering I, I hadn't read the passage this day. And I would fight to stay awake. I would sit up on my bed and I'd turn the light on and I'd get this thing off the nightstand and I would fight to read three verses, three uh, chapters every night. And uh, the rest, as they say, is history. God was very faithful to help my heart to come to understand things about him just by sitting. I spent the first few years of my Christian life um, Probably in those first three years of my Christian life, you, you, could hand, you could add up on one hand how many church meetings I went to in three years. I didn't know anything about a church. I had grown up Catholic. I went to Catholic church, but you know, I wasn't hearing Bible and life connected there. So every once in a while, I'd find my way into a meeting somewhere else the first three years. But God met me with this little Bible and three chapters a day. And my life changed 
radically in the first three years of my Christian life. This wasn't like, nothing's going on. There's no life. There's no, lots of things were happening in me. My life was changing incredibly. And there wasn't, I didn't have gatherings like this. I just had a Bible and three chapters a day. So when I encourage you to read the Bible, I have firsthand experience. I'm not just hawking some story here from another page of scripture. This has been the experience of life here. It, does, it doesn't have to be this enormous thing. What God does with just a little bit of his word in your life is powerful and dramatic. Now, variety of folks that are here, uh, maybe, maybe you're here and, and you've never read the Bible. You're not even sure you believe that it's a unique book something that you should be spending much time with. I hope today I'm going to share some thoughts with you to maybe help that a little bit. Uh, maybe you're a, a new Christian, hasn't realized the importance of the Bible. Maybe you've been saved for many years and you've just fallen into some bad habits and you're living off of bits and pieces of the Bible that you can remember from years ago, but there's not a fresh reading pattern going on in your life. Well, I, I want to investigate with you why read the Bible. Why read the Bible today? And then, then how to understand what it is that we're reading. All right, I'm going to try and preach and drive at the same time. So we'll see if this works very well for us. Well, here's some unique things about Scripture that I want to just point out to us as we go to, to read. Top five selling authors of the 1990s. If you took all these guys and added them together, John Gresham, Stephen King, Daniel Steele, Michael Crichton, Tom Clancy, I mean, they've... That's a pretty decent number of books, right? But then if you looked at the Bible in just the same period of the 1990s, over 5 billion copies of the Bible have been sold in that 10-year period. That's a lot of Bibles. Right? That there is a curiosity about scripture. There is a uniqueness to scripture that has touched people through history. George Washington says, it is, it is impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. Abraham Lincoln said, I believe the Bible is the best gift God has ever given to man. All the good from the savior of the world is communicated to us through this book. Ronald Reagan said, within the covers of the Bible are all the answers for all the problems men face. Right? There, our history has been shaped by men and women who spent time under the influence of the Bible. And, and then they produced and wrote about things, having themselves been influenced. Nelson Gluck was an archaeologist, I believe it was in the 60s. He was featured in Time magazine. He said this about the Bible. He says, I have excavated for 30 years with a Bible in one hand and a trowel in the other. In the matters of historical perspective, I have never found the Bible to be in error. He was a man whose studies resulted in many, many discoveries of biblical locations and stories. The Bible, uh, this is back in the 60s, I believe, or 70s. How true is the Bible? The Bible has always been under attack. The culture has always questioned whether you can trust the Bible, whether you can believe in the Bible. And, and yet, we're still standing today studying this book, wanting to know more and more about it. And people all over the world are still pursuing it. Time magazine said, after more than two centuries of facing the heaviest scientific guns that could be brought to bear, 
the Bible has survived and is perhaps better for the siege. Even on the critics' own terms, historical fact, the scriptures seem more acceptable now than they did when the rationalists began the attack. Chuck Colson says, The Bible, banned, burned, beloved, more widely read, more frequently attacked than any other book in history. Generations of intellectuals have attempted to discredit it. Detractors, uh, dictators of every age have outlawed it and executed those who read it. Yet soldiers carried into battle, believing it more powerful than their weapons. Fragments of it smuggled into solitary prison cells have transformed ruthless killers into gentle saints. Didn't you love hearing the story from the Gideon speaker who was here a couple of weeks ago of people who just, they just picked up a Bible. That's, and I'm moved to tears when Cindy mentions this man opens this Bible up. And he starts reading this thing because it's living and it's active and it's going to reach into his heart and have an effect on his life. If you were to go into a library and try to find out books that are in these libraries, this is the 26 most stocked library books. So out of, uh, well, eight, almost 800,000 libraries carry the Bible. About half that many carry the U.S. Census. And then you jump down to Mother Goose. And about 67,000 libraries. So, you know, more than 10 times the most popular book, libraries carry the Bible because it is, it is unique. It is not like any other book. Now, maybe you'd be one who'd say, well, but isn't the Bible really just one man's opinion? You know, when I hear people say that, the first thing that kicks into me is, uh, is an understanding of, of how to think our way through life. That feels like, when I hear someone say that, it feels like what they're trying to say is, well, there are so many opinions out there that how can we be sure that any one, any just one particular one is the right one? That that sort of feels like the right thing to say, but logically, really? So if we just create a lot of opinions, then none of them can be right, just because there's so many. Anybody? thinking that's the way to think, right? If something is right, and then I add another opinion next to it, it's still right. And I add another opinion next to it, and it's still right. I add a million more opinions, it's still right. So to stand and say, well, you know, the Bible is just one way of looking at life amongst millions of ways of looking at life. Okay, but that doesn't answer the question as to whether or not it's right. Something is right. The end of time, we're going to find out something is right. And the Bible's got some unique credentials. But here'd be the second thing. The Bible is not one man's opinion about anything. Just the way in which it's put together. Just some very interesting stats on the Bible. The Bible's actually 66 books written down by 40 different authors over a period of nearly 2,000 years in three different languages on three different continents. So this is where we get the Bible from. It's not one man sitting down and starting with Genesis, writing until he can't stand it anymore and finishes in Revelation. The different authors included shepherds, kings, scholars, prophets, fishermen, 
farmers, right? people who came from a wide variety of different places in life, different economic factors, different strata of society. The haves and the have-nots were all used by God to write this word. Different places were the source of writing these places. There were palaces, there were prisons, there were people who were in wildernesses in dire conditions who were writing the scriptures. They wrote in different styles. If you actually look at scripture, there's historical writings. There are biographical sketches. There's poetry. There's prophecy. There are proverbs. There are letters. Dear so-and-so. So there's all these different styles of writing that when you go to pick up the Bible, you know, which one are you landing in? Right, this, this is a good illustration of the Bible. It's a bookshelf, but it's the Bible. Right? And on this shelf of the Bible, and I hope this is helpful to you, as you, you maybe your person saying, you know, I've never really read much of the Bible. All right, well, when you pick it up, you're, you're, you're picking up a small library. So it's a variety of writings all put together in one book, but they are not all written exactly the same way. So you have law writings and history writings that are going to read very much the same, more of a recording of the history of things that took place, of God dealing with people, God revealing himself to a particular people at particular places, and they went here, and then they went there, and then God said that. Okay, that's kind of what that's going to feel like. Then there's poetry that feels more like uh, musical lyrics, or or it feels like a, a poem that you read growing up, and you learned how to read poetry, and it had rhyme to it, and Uh, There were images that were real big, and it used a lot of language that had a lot of imagery in it. You got major prophets and minor prophets in the next section of the Bible. A little bit of a historical sense, but also God revealing something about what he was saying into human history and what he was saying was going to happen in human history. So when you read those books, they're a little different than the other books. Then you read the Gospels, and the Gospels are biographical sketches. There are four different writers that God used to write a sketch of the life of Jesus Christ. It doesn't tell every event that he did, but it talks about the events that God wanted us to know about. The book of Acts and then Paul's letters. Uh, then you have the other letters all the way to the book of Revelation in the New Testament. So you have this wide variety of books that were written, three different continents, different languages over a 2,000-year span. Wow, can you imagine how confusing this book must sound? That's a lot of different people writing about stuff. I mean, here we are, 2014. Let's just, let's just do a random sampling of people here this, you know, that are with us this morning. We'll take us, you know, maybe just, I don't know, 40 people upstairs into the room up there. And we'll just throw out, and we'll give you a pen and paper, throw out a couple of questions. Uh, why did Hurricane Katrina happen? And we'll just let everybody write that down. You just write down. Why, why do you think that happened? Why, why is there so much crime in our city? Everybody, you can't cheat, so you get your own ideas. You write them all down. And maybe the last question is, uh, who was the absolute worst draft pick for the New Orleans Saints? <laughs> right, any, I just want to test this out because I, I think we might be in agreement on this one. How many of you guys would say Russell Erksleben? <laughs> all right, well, let's do this. We still can't get agreement. Right, so if you wrote all that stuff down, and we all grew up in, in the same area, we speak the same language. We dress the same. We're from the same culture. We've got, we've got so much in common. But when we go to write this stuff down, wow, we'd be all over the place, wouldn't we? You wouldn't have one coherent thought about right and wrong and, 
why things happen the way they do. But when you pick up the Bible and you go from Genesis to Revelation, it stays cohesive throughout the whole thing. And it screams out at you and says, apparently individual writers could not have been responsible for that. It testifies that there is a God behind all that's been written here. Well, where, where do we get our, our Bible from? Well, if you want to look at this passage in 2 Timothy, I'm going to put it up on the screen here as well. Here's what the, the Bible says about where the Bible comes from. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, for we were with him. On the holy mountain. Where do we get the Bible? Well, we, we get the Bible from real historic events, right? Sometimes we're not familiar with the Bible. We just think it's, it's random stories, you know, like a Santa Claus kind of a thing. Like if somebody just made this thing up somewhere and it just got perpetuated and then perpetuated and perpetuated. No, it's, it's real events that really took place. And it's, it's eyewitnesses who were involved in many of these events writing down what they saw. Now, here's what's interesting. Because if you had looked at this, these scriptures through the eyes of the culture, you would have never written the Bible this way. And the Bible would not have the storyline that it has. If you're looking to sell a book to the Jews, you would not have written this story. If you were looking to sell a book to the Gentiles, you would not have written this story because no one's buying this. Jewish people had an idea that a king was coming, a Messiah was coming. <clears throat> he was coming to rescue them. From all the oppression, all the mistreatment in this age, he's going to be a mighty king. He's going to have an army with him. He's going to ride a horse. And then Jesus shows up. And he's a carpenter from Nazareth. He needed to be like a gladiator renegade. I mean, somebody who was tough, could, you know, could wield a sword, could inspire people that were going to take over. Enough of this oppression. That's all the zealots wanted. And this carpenter from Nazareth shows up. And he says stuff like, well, my kingdom is not of this world. Well, <laughs> Apparently not. You're by yourself. <laughs> Where's your army? So the Jews who are awaiting a, a Messiah to ride in on a horse and command an army and take over the world, they get a carpenter who gets led to a cross and gets nailed there and dies. Now, if you're trying to sell a book to the Jews, you don't have a good storyline going on. And the Gentiles, well, you don't have a good one for them either. Their religious heroes are, are kind of like, you know, Greek mythology superheroes. They, they, they do all kinds of amazing tricks and, you know, they can overcome human powers. And <clears throat> they don't end up on a cross like a common thief being killed by the Romans. This is, this is not popular. But yet this, these scriptures get written down and 
God changes the world through them. And there's no explanation for it in the natural. Christianity should have died off in the first century. It should have been a flash in the pan that you and I can find a few fragments of writing here and there. It should never have gathered this many people in the year 2014 on another continent for people who speak a different language who are still picking this book up and being affected by it. That never should have happened. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 19 says, And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, right? So according to God, this is an individual's making stuff up, right? That's not how the scriptures get created. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So in, in some mysterious way, God invades the space of an individual, these shepherds and kings, these guys who are writing the Bible. The presence of the Holy Spirit becomes formative in them and through them, and they begin to write down the thoughts and impressions that God is imparting to them. And you say, well, how do you, how do you know? I mean, sorry, so you say this is from God. Well, how do you know? Well, the Bible claims it's, it's a lamp in a dark place. It's like it's leaving a trail of crumbs to show you. If you just follow it, you'll, you'll find out. It's, it's pretty amazing. Look at, look at these fulfilled prophecies about Jesus Christ. There's not all the prophecies that are fulfilled by him. But consider these. His place of birth, right, which he had no control over. Micah chapter 5. Remember, but to you, O Bethlehem, from you shall come forth... For me, one who is to be ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. And that passage is a little longer than that. I'm just giving you a little quick highlight. This is written in 750 BC. 750 years before Christ is born, the prophet Micah is moved on by the Holy Spirit to be able to say, this is where the Messiah will be born. His type of birth. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Well, that's from the prophet Isaiah in 740. BC. The time of his appearance in Daniel is recorded. That's 600 years before Christ. The Jerusalem entrance, Zechariah chapter 9, your king is coming to you, mounted on a donkey, on a foal. Remember, he enters in on Palm Sunday. That's 520 years before it takes place. His betrayal, this is a great passage. Write this down and go back and look at it. Zechariah chapter 11, verse 12. 30 pieces of silver that get thrown into the house of the Lord to the potter. And do you remember the story? Jesus is going to be betrayed by one of his own friends, Judas. Judas has some moment in which he comes to grips with what he's done. I don't really know that he ever repented or if he, what exactly he did. But somehow he got on the bad end of feeling, I don't think I've done the right thing here. Well, he had betrayed Jesus for a price. They had paid him. They had set the price. 30 pieces of silver. The 30 pieces of silver that Zechariah talked about 520 years earlier. Not 20 pieces of silver. Not, hey, we got this brand new donkey we want to give to you, buddy. 
If you'll betray him, you'll be riding that sweet thing right there. (laughs) Instead, it's a little bag, and we've carefully counted it out, 30 pieces of silver. And then he gets this 30 pieces of silver, and he has some kind of remorse. And he comes back, and he throws it back to them. And they take it in the house of the Lord, and they use it to buy a potter's field. All that was exactly what God said 520 years earlier. His type of death. If you, if you read Psalm 22, you get introduced to crucifixion and what crucifixion is going to look and feel like in Psalm 22. Now, the only amazing thing is uh, it's about 800 years before the Romans started to use crucifixion to kill people. So it's being prophesied, though it's not even being practiced yet in 1000 BC. His burial, Isaiah 53, again, that's 740 years earlier. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. And the resurrection's prophesied in Psalm 16, verse 10. Now, I don't know who these mathematicians are who figure out a way to look at these particular prophecies that are going to be fulfilled by one in particular individual amongst all the people who ever lived. Okay, so you've got to fulfill all this stuff. You want to be the Messiah? You've got to be born in a certain place at a certain time. You have to have a certain type of birth, certain type of death. You've got to be betrayed a certain way. All this stuff's got to come true for you to be the Messiah. Now, if you're just curious, the odds of all these coming true is one in 10 to the 17th power. And for those of you who didn't like math. That's one in that many. I don't even know what number that is. This is why, this is why Peter can say, we have a more sure word, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention. And this is, this is a fact of life. Maybe somebody says, you know, I'm a busy guy. I'm a successful guy. You know, I don't even read wall street journal. Okay. You ever read God's word? Well, no, I'm a busy guy. Got a lot going on. Let me just let you know that when you, when you get to the end of time and you stand before God, there will be no Wall Street Journal questions. Doesn't matter whether you can read the stock market page. Doesn't matter whether you understand corporate takeovers. What God will be interested in is, did you, did you notice that I, I put this trail of crumbs down for you? It's all throughout scripture that if you read it, it would lead you to this one individual who was born a carpenter in Nazareth. And then he died that death and was raised from the dead. And he is the only means of saving you from your sin and reconciling you to God. That, that's going to be the question of all questions. And God has preserved this in his word. It's not as though this is not knowable. This is knowable to anybody who will pick up a Bible and simply read it. Now, why do we have the scriptures? What's, what's the purpose of the Bible? Right? So as you go to read here in the summer Bible jam, what, what's this Bible trying to speak to you about? It talks about a lot of stuff. There's people with sandals on and robes on and they're riding around. They got horses and donkeys and they're planting stuff and they're harvesting things. And there's, there's blood and there's people being slain and there's all kinds of evil stuff happening. What is all this trying to lead us to? Let's get some insight from what the Bible says. Second Timothy, New Testament, chapter three, Paul says, but as for you, speaking to young Timothy, his uh, disciple, but as for you, 
Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. These sacred writings, this this is being written in the first century. So uh, growing up, Timothy, maybe the year is 40 AD, he's being introduced to the scriptures as a young Jewish boy by his mother and his grandmother. So this is the Old Testament that Paul's referring to. You were read and taught the Old Testament and you were familiar with those writings. Now, Paul goes on and says this about those writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. You just got introduced to the reason why the Old Testament scriptures exist. Right? They're not just to teach us some interesting moral lessons here. The purpose for the Old Testament scriptures, not just the New Testament scriptures, right? Because Timothy doesn't have a New Testament. He doesn't have one of these. He's got an Old Testament. What were the purpose of the Old Testament? Well, to lead you to faith in Jesus Christ. Well, no, Keith, that's the purpose of the New Testament. I mean, the Old Testament was for the Jews, man. To lead them to faith in Jesus Christ. That's what the Old Testament scriptures were for. That's what the whole Bible is for. The whole Bible is written down, recorded from all its various locations and backgrounds and writers to accomplish this one thing, to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. It is not what so many people have turned this book into. People put their hand on it, they swear on it, and uh, it's sacred, it's... It's got all kinds of moral code in it, behavior things, what you're supposed to do, what you're not supposed to do. So some people turn it into the highest moral authority in the land. So you put your hand on it and you swear because it's the highest moral authority in the land. It teaches us the rules of life. So now it becomes a behavior book. This is a book that teaches you how to behave. This is a book that tells you what you can do and what you can't do. And we're going to feature it in arguments. We'll feature it in the argument on homosexuality. Because the Bible says something about that. So you pick this book up and next thing you know, it's it's a book arguing a position on this topic. And it's arguing a position on this topic. So is that what the Bible is? It's a book that argues positions on topics. Is that why the Bible's written? Or maybe the, the Bible is like other people use it. It's full of these catchy phrases and live your life by these little things. I try to live by, and it's like, like a motto book, you know, it's like you just extract these quotes out of these, you know, out of the Bible. It's like, you know, well, cleanliness is next to godliness. Got that out of the Bible. And that's how we try to live our lives. At least that's what we try to teach our teenagers when they keep their room. Um, Or, you know, my favorite that I never miss a chance to pick on, you know, God helps those who help themselves. All right, y'all know how much I love that verse that's not in the Bible, by the way. Uh, <clears throat> but it sounds like it is, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound like something you find in the Bible? 
And so there's a moral to the story there. It's this little catchy idea that, okay, so you want to you get God involved? You get involved. You want God to help you? Well, you got to help yourself first. You want God to love you? You got to love yourself. I mean, all these little catchy ideas that we act like we got them from the Bible. Well, interesting, we, we don't get a lot of those from the Bible. That one's not from the Bible. There's a CNN belief blog. The blog's called, actually, that's not in the Bible. <laughs> that's what it's called. Look at this quote from there. This guy says, but people rarely challenge, you know, these crazy little ideas because biblical ignorance is so pervasive that it even reaches groups of people who should know better. Oh my gosh. Says Steve Bomber Prediger, a religion professor at Hope College in Holland, Michigan. In my college religion classes, I sometimes quote Second Hesitations, chapter four, verse three. <laughs> it says, there are no internal combustion engines in heaven. Boomer Prediger says, I wait to see if anyone realizes there's no such book in the Bible and therefore no such verse. Only a few catch on. Few catch on because they don't want to. People prefer knowing biblical passages that reinforce their pre-existing beliefs. So isn't it amazing how the people who know something or pretend to know something about the Bible... uh, it just tends to reinforce their bad idea to start with. It's like they don't own anything else in the Bible except something that reinforces their bad idea. So God helps those who help themselves. Well, you know, that's a, that's a wonderfully man-centered concept. And we as human beings, we love to be featured. We're the mover and shaker. God's the responder. We do and then God does. We go and then God will come along with us. That's upside down. That's not the God you meet in the Bible. The God who's in the Bible was here before you were here. He was doing lots of stuff. As a matter of fact, he's the only being who could stand at the beginning of something and decree everything and stand at the end of it all at the same time and say, whatever's going to happen between here and there, you know, if I could move across this thing instantaneously, God says, go for it. I'm there. It's all there. In in God, it's all in existence already. So there's no man moving God thing happening when you read the Bible, you kind of discover that's the case. But if you're man-centered, you don't get it. But the Bible's not about a bunch of nice, moral, proverbial saying kind of ideas. The Bible is about one thing. It's trying to get one message across to us. If you read it, it will make you wise for salvation through Jesus Christ. The whole Bible is about that. Go back as far as you can and study the man named Adam and his wife Eve. Their story is about what Jesus Christ is going to come to do. Abraham. Why do we have a story about Abraham? Not so we can be inspired to be like Abraham. Abraham was a cool guy. Abraham... I was mentioned to a class this morning that we had earlier. Abraham was a risk-taking guy, wasn't he? Right? If you're a motivational speaker, this is how you use Abraham's story. There was once this guy named Abraham. He had it good. He was all set up for life. Living, large. But he decided to take a huge risk. A huge risk. He was going to leave everything that he was familiar with and go to a land that he had no idea about. But he was going to come to find out later on it was a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a land much better and much richer than anything else he'd experience. And now listen, 
if you want to live that kind of life, you're going to need to learn to take some risks too. Let's have an altar call. Let's all be like Abraham. All right, do you realize that's a shortened version of real messages? People come to church to hear a story from the Bible, a story about a character in the Bible, a story about some noble deed. Gideon, with his few guys of 300, faced massive armies that came against him. And sometimes, guys, you have to be courageous too. Do you notice I can tell all these stories and Jesus Christ never had to die on the cross? The Bible doesn't have to have anything to do with Jesus Christ for you to take risks like Abraham or, or be courageous like Gideon, learn to share, do something moral. It just, I just need to say it in a clever way that'll make you stop doing it one way and start doing it another way. That's not what the Bible is given for. The Bible is given for this, to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The Bible is about one thing from a bunch of different perspectives and at different points in a timeline, the Bible is about one thing. And, and there, is, there is this thread, and this, this is a fresh illustration in my head because I have been at war with kudzu vines in my backyard. How many of you guys know what kudzu vines are? How many of you guys have them growing like 30 feet in the air anywhere near you? All right, come see me if you do. You want to see what that looks like? Come visit me in midsummer. All right, kudzu vine is this vine that it, it start here and it'll, it'll run underneath your grass and stuff. And it can travel blocks, I think. And when you find it, I mean, it's like big tree bark on one end and then it spreads out and it crawls up all your bushes and covers them. And, you know, you used to have lovely bushes and now you have like this nasty looking vine. When you go to pull on that thing, because right, I find it, I'm, I'm angry when I find it, by the way. I find it and I start pulling on it and, and I pull on it and stuff starts moving all over the place. Like I'm pulling this vine and the bushes are moving because this thing is run underneath there and it's all getting pulled together. All right, well, that's kind of the way the Bible is. You know, way over here on the edge is a guy named Gideon. But, but see, that right this root that's running right through the middle of the Bible is called the gospel. And so when I put my hands on the gospel and I pull on the gospel, Abraham moves out of the corner of my eye over here. And there's this Moses guy over here and he's doing something too. When I pull on the gospel, these guys are all attached to the gospel. That's what the Bible's about. It's trying to communicate one thing to us. It's teaching us bunches of stuff along the way about life, about God, about ourselves. But there's one inescapable reason that the Bible gets written down. It's trying to show us that you and I, our only way out of this place is to be rescued by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. If you get anything else out of the Bible besides that, go, go back and read it more carefully. You've missed the main point. All right, so let, let me see if I can turn this into something that we're a little bit more familiar with. What if I said the gospel is this one unfolding storyline and I just divided it up into some episodes, right? This is, you guys remember episodes. You know, you've watched Star Wars and uh, Star Trek or Lord of the Rings, whatever. All right, so here's, here's the episodes that are in the Bible. And if you, if you just jump into scripture at a certain point, you're in one of the episodes and it might be helpful for you to know which one you're in. So episode one is, is creation and fall. 
Right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All right, so instantly, you just found out something really, really important. Where did all this stuff come from? Who owns everything here? Well, God does, right? You, even you read the New Testament. All things were created through him and for him. All right, so when I jump into episode one and God originates everything and he's the owner of it all, I've just learned a lot, right? Uh, He's the master, the owner. He's the source. There's an explanation here for suffering and man's problems. There's a promise of a solution in this first chapter. Right? You just get little bits and pieces of it from right in the beginning. But how helpful is this for us? Episode one, reading the Bible, I find out God created everything, gave life to it, and he owns it all. He owns it all. Just think for a moment about how you respond when someone who matters to you in your life dies. That's a big category. We're deeply affected by that. How many of us have to work through, struggle through, and wrestle through the thought that God has done something wrong? Let me make this ridiculously simple. Um, friend of yours comes over for dinner. Husband and wife both drive over, park their cars in front of your house, drive off in one car, come back a couple of hours later, pick up the other car and drive off in it. How many of you are offended? How many of you feel like they did something wrong? Let me just change the story a little bit. They come back and drive off in one of your cars. <laughs> How are you feeling now? They're pulling out of your driveway. They're driving your car home. All right, well, there's something wrong with that. See, the difference is uh, who's the owner, right? If you own it and someone takes it from you, a wrong was done. If God owns it and he takes it, Has he done anything wrong? No. It it feels wrong for a bunch of reasons in our lives when we lose people that we love. But God is the owner of everything. God has created everything for his own purpose. So if he chooses to put something at this address for 30 years, 60 years, or 100 years and moves it to another address, he's the owner. He has not done anything wrong. And by how helped are all of us by carefully reading episode one and finding out God created everything for a purpose. I want to be identifying what is God's purpose for his creation, not just what is my purpose for his creation. Well, why is there suffering? Why does stuff not work? Well, when I pick up episode one, I find out that all of humanity has been infected with a disease called sin. It has traveled into every one of our gene pools. And so our lives will never be the same again. This planet will never be the same again. There is a disease that only has one cure to it. And the Bible is trying to tell me about the cure all throughout its way, right? So this, this is episode one. Now, episode two is kind of interesting because it, it, it develops some interesting plot line here, right? Episode two, God chooses a people to work through in order to invade the human situation. 
So God chooses a guy named Abraham. That's why we know about a guy named Abraham, so that we can understand that God chose to invade this world through a man named Abraham and his lineage. So his family is set apart, the Hebrews and then the nation of Israel. Why does the Bible talk so much about this one particular nation? Well, because we learn in episode two that the way in which God would go public, the way in which God would reveal himself into the world was through a nation. So it's like, you know, all of us could get this. Well, why doesn't God just show up on a screen? You know, just show up, write some words for us on a screen. Well, he kind of showed up through a nation and he wrote himself into their lives and he reveals himself through them. Right, so when you read in the Bible and there's all this stuff about the nation of Israel, the nation of, what is all this nation of Israel stuff? Well, it's episode two, God choosing to reveal himself. And then we, we Abraham and Moses and David, we're, we're taught things like these 10 commandments in episode two. And then we're taught about a bunch of bloody animals being chopped up and sliced all over. So this, you read through this stuff and you kind of go, man, this is just weird. We don't do this kind of stuff in America. What, what? What were they thinking of? Well, in episode two, we learn something about righteousness through the Ten Commandments. It's God saying, hey, if I were a man, this would, this would be the kind of things that I would do. How you doing? That's, that's why the Ten Commandments are given. How you doing? You keep me first in all things. You got no other idols before me. Not making any images that you go after and put your trust and your hope in. No. Committing adultery. Lying murder. You doing any of those things? All right. So God gives this to a nation to reveal to the world that if you don't do life this way, then you have this disease called sin and you fall short and you're disqualified. And then he backs that up with, but there's a remedy to that. At some point it's, it's going to be an innocent one dying in the place of guilty ones. Ooh, I know how I can illustrate that. Bring me some of those sheep over there. You know, those sweet little sheep. They're just so sweet. They just stand around. They bleed. They don't bite. You know, they just, bah. Bring one of those over here. Uh, and I tell you what, why don't you just give that little sheep your sin and your guilt. And then, then kill it. Take its life. And let the blood come out. And God writes all this out, right? This is episode two. You find it in Leviticus and Numbers, and Deuteronomy. God explaining When you come up short of the Ten Commandments, when you fail in these areas, if you want to find forgiveness, there's going to need to be bloodshed. Hey, why don't you all practice that for several hundred years, just to make sure you get the point? Because later on, I'm going to send a lamb, and he's going to die and shed his own blood so that all of your sins can be forgiven. See, that I'm, I'm writing this down in episode two so you can understand the episodes later that are about to come and you can get it and not miss out on how this was to make you wise for faith in Jesus Christ. Years and years and years of doing this to teach you. You fall short, an innocent one needs to die in your place and he's coming. And that's episode three, the coming of the Messiah. That there is one and there is only one who can save us from this disease of sin and its judgment from God. And he has come to restore us to God. Episode four, we get into after the cross and the resurrection is go and tell the world teaching what Christ accomplished, the great commission in which the church and the age in which we live, right? You and I live in episode four right now. 
where we take the gospel into all the world and teach folks about putting their faith in Jesus Christ. And then episode five is the future of all things, which is referred to in numerous places throughout scripture, but it's talking about what is to come and what's in the future. Now, listen, if, if you just look at the Bible this way, you're going to jump into it. You're going to pick the Bible up. You're going to start reading it. What episode are you in? Well, that's kind of helpful to know. So when you go to read the Bible, figure out, okay, where am I landing in this story? Because there's a story already in progress here. And I know it sounds confusing. I mean, you got, you got high priests and you got all these characters. You got Moses and David and Solomon and, oh, man, there's kings. And, okay, this is, well, this is getting common. And then there's nations. There's Israel and there's Egypt and Babylonia. And I don't even know if I can follow all this, Keith. All right, I bet you can. I bet you can. Let me tell you a different story. Once upon a time, in a galaxy far, far away, <laughs> there was a guy named Luke Skywalker. Right now, already, you already kind of know what episode you're in, don't you? What planet he was on, and the tragedy that led to him. Did you know he had a twin sister? How many of y'all knew that? Yeah, of course. You know a lot of stuff about Luke. Did you know who his real father is? you don't know, you're going to be so shocked, <laughs> right? There's this guy, Darth Vader. He's got a breathing problem. There's a little green guy named Yoda. <laughs> there's, there's the Republic and there's the empire right now. I, everything I'm telling to you, you've got a category for it. Don't you? You're like, yeah, I get that. I know I, I can see him. Yeah. I know whose side he's on. I get it. But I start throwing out, they went into exile in Babylon and your brain goes, well, what exile? What the heck is that? In Babylon, where's Babylon? Bab- is that like Babylonians? Is that Tower of Babel? What is that? Uh, why are we so hard to catch the Bible? Can I just tell you the plot line of the Bible is easier than Star Wars? <laughs> I know it sounds like it's, well, it's, kind of, it's complicated, man. No, it really isn't. It really isn't. Star Wars is complicated. So listen, we can get this, but to get it, we just need to pick it up and read it. It's got to be part of our lives. Let me just close with this one, one quote, because there's a uniqueness. The Bible is about one thing, but yet that one thing is, is critical and essential for everything in our lives. So when you, when you try to do anything in life, you try to get a job, make a living and have money in your life without an understanding of our lives needed to become wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. They put money in your pocket without you understanding your need to be reconciled to God and see how you live. Let me let you get married without you understanding your need to be reconciled to God, forgiven by God, humbled by the fact that he would choose and forgive you and empowered by the Holy Spirit. See, there's, there's implications to this one good news that travels into our lives all over the place, right? It's a helpful quote from R.C. Sproul. He says, one of the most important advantages the Bible gives us is that it provides information that is not available anywhere else. Only God can provide us with an eternal perspective and speak to us with absolute and final authority. The advantage of the equipment provided by scripture is that knowledge is made available to us that can be learned from no other 
source. You can read all the self-help books you want. You can watch all the motivational programs that are on TV that you want. You can read the latest thing. But see, there's only one author who stood at the beginning of time before everything existed and was there. Framed it all, formed man, created the universe, and stood at the end of human existence and was there at the same time. And guarantees that he can get us from here to here. And he knows the depths of everything that's ever been created and everything that's ever been designed, where it's all going. There's only one who knows that, and it's God himself. And he has revealed himself most clearly in the scriptures. And if you and I have any hope, guys, if we have any hope of navigating from here to there, we're going to need to know information that only this God knows. And it's here. And it's available. And it's knowable. Welcome to Summer Bible Jam. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the treasure of your word. Lord, more valuable than gold, sweeter than honey. Lord, are your words to our lives and, and, and more necessary than anything else. Lord, we all have things pressing on us, pulling in our time, stealing our thoughts and our energy. But Lord, nothing is more critical and more precious to our lives than your word. So Lord, would you make us a church this summer, Lord, make us, remake us in this category. Lord, may what may have been foreign in the past become common. Lord, may it be one story after another of people who find their way into your word on a daily basis and and get together and discuss it and live in the good of your word. So God, we're looking for big things. Lord, bring us into your promises this summer. Give us grace in the midst of all of our weaknesses, all the moments that we'll strive and fail and try and forget. And Lord, meet us in all those moments and give grace to us that we might know the value of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Bless you guys. Oh, hey guys, this little thing right here, this little card, it's your four questions.